Hi, everyone, and welcome to American Ambulance EMS Podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's Medical Director. I'm here with our fantastic co-hosts, Dr. Sajan Bakta and Dr. Patil Armenian. Hi, everyone. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about cold injuries. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of American's family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. Patia, why don't you kick us off and share us about your case that you've had in Boston when you were training? Yeah, I went to a medical school in Boston, and I haven't seen the same level of frostbite uh, here in California ever since I moved here. But in Boston, it was pretty routine for us to be taking care of all different types of frostbite. And I distinctly remember a homeless gentleman who came in one day due to hand pain. And when we looked at his hands, both of his hands actually looked like he had um, second to third degree burns circumferentially around every single finger and around his palms. And that was just from the cold because he'd been out in the cold for so long. And I think even maybe wearing some wet gloves at some point, he basically had circumferential burns. I remember the burn service needed to debris everything. And then he was on, on the burn team getting a couple times a day dressing changes for I think well over a month. Um, but I just remember being so shocked that cold can injure your skin in such a devastating manner where you just lose function of your hands, which are so important. So today, this is exactly what we're going to be talking about. These freezing and non-freezing injuries that occur when it's super cold outside. We're going to go through chill blains, trench foot, frost nip, and frostbite. Now, today, we're not going to be covering hypothermia. If you want more in-depth discussion of hypothermia, please check out our hypothermia podcast. Our skin and subcutaneous tissues normally have a temperature of about 98.6 degrees, and this is maintained by our circulating blood. And blood gets its heat mainly from the energy given off by cellular metabolism. When you're out in the cold, your body is going to vasoconstrict all your peripheral blood vessels so that the heat is preserved in the core of your body. And so that means less warm blood reaches the skin, so body parts such as fingers, toes, ears, and nose cool down more rapidly because those are where most of the vasoconstriction is happening. Now, at some point, it gets so cold that tissue begins to freeze, uh, which obviously is not good um, because when tissue freezes, ice crystals are formed within the cells. Rubbing tissue promotes cell damage from those ice crystals. So as all the fluids inside the cells freeze, extracellular fluid enters the cell, and then there's an increase in the levels of extracellular salts because of osmosis and water transfer. So then what happens is that cells may rupture due to tearing by the ice crystals. Now, as the ice melts, all the salts want to rush into the, to the cells further, damaging cell membranes. And so then more cells are destroyed, resulting in death and loss of that tissue. 
Now, tissue can't freeze if the temperature is above 32 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's a key number. And it has to be below 28 degrees Fahrenheit um, for really a lot of the freezing to occur um, because of the salt content in body fluids. And once again, distal areas of the body and areas with a high surface-to-volume ratio are the most susceptible. So that's going to be ears, nose, fingers, and toes. Now, even in extremely cold weather, if the skin, fingers, toes, ears, and nose are well-protected or exposed only briefly, cold injuries usually don't occur. Really, the risk of cold injuries increases when the flow of blood is impeded or when food intake is inadequate, meaning you're not going to have adequate metabolism, or when insufficient oxygen is available as occurs at high altitudes. So it does take something extra for somebody to get severely injured from the cold. So let's go through these injuries. You know, injuries are broken into freezing injuries and non-freezing injuries. As we go through, we're going to discuss each injury, their signs and symptoms, and then how to treat them. The first non-freezing injury we're going to talk about is frost snip. This is the freezing of the top layers of the skin tissue. Usually this is reversible and manifests with numbness, white discoloration, waxy skin top layer that feels hard and rubbery, but the deeper tissue is still soft. Typically this is seen on the cheek, the earlobes, the fingers, and the toes. Now how do we treat this? It's usually managed by gentle rewarming, by blowing warm air or placing the area against a warm body part or submerging the affected tissue in some warm water. Avoid rubbing as this can damage the tissue by having those ice crystals that we talked about tear in the cells. You want to remove constricting clothing and typically the thawing is complete when the part is pliable and the color is returned and the sensation has returned. But once the area is rewarmed, there can be significant pain. We typically recommend not using dry heat. There's a high risk of actually burning the skin if you use dry heat. And once rewarmed, the injured area should be wrapped in a sterile gauze and protected from further movement and further cold. It's really important to remember that once you've warmed them, you don't want to refreeze them or re-expose it to the cold because it's a sensitive tissue. So with froth snip, um, if you don't have the opportunity to keep it warm, so say you're out in the wilderness, you're hiking, and then you notice that you're going to warm it, but you don't have a chance to keep it warm, then just keep it cold. You don't want to have a freeze, rewarm, freeze, rewarm kind of syndrome because that affects the tissue much, much more. So let's jump into chillblains. Chillblains, otherwise known as erythema pernio, is a superficial tissue injury that occurs after prolonged or intermittent exposure to temperatures above freezing and high humidity with high winds. So they're really painful inflammatory lesions of the skin caused by chronic intermittent exposure to damp and cold conditions. So with chillblains, initially there's a pallor. That means the skin kind of looks white. Um, and then this is followed by redness or erythema, and then a lot of itching of the affected area. Women and young children are the most susceptible, and the most common body parts involved are the cheeks and ears, fingers and toes. Now, the cold exposure causes damage to peripheral capillary beds, and this damage is actually permanent. The redness and itching will come back if they're re-exposed to cold. So once again, you want to prevent uh, re-exposure to the cold. And just know that although it's uncomfortable, you know, it's like red and itchy, it's not serious and it will improve with rewarming. Just try to not go back into the cold like we also mentioned with frost nip. 
Now let's jump to trench foot. You know, trench foot is direct injury to the soft tissues sustained from prolonged cooling in wet conditions. It's interesting to go back to history. You know, this was named trench foot because of World War I. So 1914 and 1918, when about 75,000 British and a couple thousand American soldiers developed this condition after spending long periods in wet, cold trenches on the front lines. So what happens is the peripheral nerves. They're the most sensitive the feet become pale, right? They're mottled. They can't feel them at all, and they really can't even move them. If you can imagine at wartime, that would be very devastating for your troops. So they get really red or hyperemic and painful when you rewarm them. But it's more chronic, so they're exposed to this over long periods of time. And it's a process that's very similar to chilblains caused by this prolonged immersion of the feet in these cool, wet conditions. It can actually occur in temperatures as high as 60 degrees, which is pretty warm. So we see this a lot in sea sports, um, people who are always in water. Um, also, you, we can see this with our own patients that are you know, alcohol intoxicated. Maybe they urinate on themselves and their, their urine goes into their boots or their shoes and they're walking around with wet, soggy feet and soggy socks for long periods of time. So we'll see trench foot. So let's talk about the pathophysiology. You know, since wet feet lose heat 25 times faster than dry feet, the body uses vasoconstriction to shut down this peripheral circulation. So basically, if you think about they're cutting off the blood supply to your feet, your body is to keep, you know, your core warm. And that makes it even worse because it's wet, it's soggy, and then there's lack of blood supply there to keep it warm. So the skin tissue begins to die because there's no oxygen in the tissue, and there's no nutrients, and it kind of builds up these toxic products. So the skin is initially reddened with and numb, then it gets tingling and painful, then it gets itchy, then it becomes pale and mottled, and then finally it looks really dark and purple and gray or blue. Um, and this affected tissue usually dies and sloughs off. So in severe cases, trench foot can involve the toes, the heels, or the entire foot. If circulation is impaired for more than six hours, there will be permanent damage to the tissue. So if circulation is impaired for over 24 hours, that victim may sadly lose their entire foot. So it's really important to notice this when you have that homeless patient, you know, take off their shoes, take a look at it. I know we do that in the emergency departments. You know, actually just yesterday, this reminds me, we had a patient that um, it was his third ER visit that day. And the nurse um, grabbed me. She was He was an EMS patient. The nurse grabbed me to go to the EMS hallway saying, oh, well, he, this is his third visit, but nobody looked at his feet. And the paramedics took his shoes off. And I go out into the hallway and I look, and sure enough, um, he had the beginning signs of trench foot. And so then we kind of immediately got him a bed and moved him back to the green zone of our ER. And this makes sense of how important it is for the medics really help determine the history and the progression of treatment inside the emergency department. So they're complaining of foot pain. We really got to get those shoes off and take a look. Sajan, why don't you take us through the treatment and prevention of, of trench foot? So again, this is more of a chronic process. So a lot of our treatment may not be as immediate as typically we'd like to treat things, but consists of gentle drying, elevation, and exposure of the extremity to an environmental temperature of 64 to 72 degrees Fahrenheit, while keeping the rest of the body warm too. Since the tissue is not frozen, as in severe frostbite, it's more susceptible to damage by walking on it. So typically we recommend bed rest, cleanliness, wound care, pain relief. The prognosis depends on the extent of the original tissue and nerve damage. Minimal and mild cases can resolve in hours to days or weeks, and most eventually return to normal activity. However, moderate to severe cases, or cases that have gone on for weeks to months, can take months to heal, and most of these patients do not return to full activity. 
Really, prevention is key. It's the best approach to dealing with trench foot. Keep your feet dry by wearing appropriate footwear. Check feet regularly to see if they're wet. If they do get wet through sweating or immersion, stop and dry feet and wear dry socks. This applies especially to people who sweat more than usual. Want to change socks at least once a day and avoid sleeping with wet socks. All right, so let's jump into the injuries where tissue is actually frozen. Frostbite. Frostbite is more severe and actually includes all layers of the skin. Um, The skin looks white and has a wooden feel all the way through with numbness and therefore clumsiness of the affected extremity. Um, Over 75% will have numbness and almost all of them will have some sort of diminished light touch or diminished pain feeling or diminished temperature sensation. This is an ischemic injury. And it's because the skin temperature actually falls below zero degrees Celsius or 32 degrees Fahrenheit. So again, this is when ice crystals form in the intracellular space, thus damaging the osmotic shifts um, and therefore cell membranes die. That means cells die. So frostbite can be graded like a burn. So remember in the beginning when I was talking about that case I saw in medical school uh, where the burn service was involved because it looked like a burn, and that's really what it is. It's graded like a burn uh, where first degree is just very peripheral, very similar to mild chillblain with redness, mild itching, some swelling, no blistering or peeling of the skin is happening. So I kind of think of that like a sunburn. Exactly. So chillblain is equivalent to a sunburn. Yes. Um, Then a second degree frostbite is when there's some blistering, some peeling of the skin um, or desquamation. A third degree is when there's actual skin necrosis. So you see like black skin that's dying and the subcutaneous tissue will also have like ulcerations or kind of holes in it. Um, And then fourth degree is now complete destruction of connective tissues and bone with gangrene setting in. So that's a part of the limb that might have to actually surgically come off. Let's jump to frostbite treatment. So really, you're going to treat the hypothermia first. So remember to go through treatment of hypothermia, check out our previous podcast on hypothermia. Field rewarming is rarely practical in the backcountry. Um, If it is practical, you know, you could rewarm with warm soak. So you want this body part that has the frostbite to be in like 100 degree to 108 degree water, which is really not practical for EMS or outside um, in the backcountry. So if it's not possible, you're going to warm them as best as you can, get the wet clothes off. You're going to put something dry around it and um, just try to have it in a more warm space and save the rewarming, the active rewarming when they get to the hospital. Um, But remember, friction massage is not helpful and actually increases the amount of tissue loss, so do not try to rub it. And then the main take-home point here is tissue refreezing is really disastrous. So you need to not have it thaw and then refreeze again. So you really got to think to yourself, can I get this warm and then keep it warm, or am I worried that it's going to refreeze again? And I think that's why in the pre-hospital setting, a lot of times, you know, since it's very difficult to keep them warm, it's it's okay to keep them cool until you get to your destination when actual like permanent rewarming can occur. So in the hospital, after rewarming, there are certain signs that we look for to see if we expect a good prognosis versus a poor prognosis. Good prognostic signs are large, clear blebs or blisters that develop early and extend to the tips of the digits, rapid return of sensation, return to normal temperature in the injured area, rapid capillary refilling time, pink or mildly erythematous skin color that blanches and improves 
pretty quickly. Now, poor prognostic signs are if the skin or the digit is hard, white, cold, has no sensation, is cyanotic, or has complete absence of any capillary refill. If you have dark bleeding blisters, you can have early mummification where the skin becomes very taut. And then other signs of tissue necrosis or systemic signs of tissue necrosis, such as fever, tachycardia, superimposed trauma, or even discoloration of the skin that does not improve with warming. Let's go through some summary take-home points, what we want people to remember. Um, Patio, kick us off. As with anything, prevention of these injuries, if out in the cold, is, is key. Sajin. In the field, it may not be practical to do a complete rewarming and only do this if you know you can keep them warm. And my take-home point is refreezing after thawing frostbite can be disastrous. So I'd prefer you just to keep them cold until you end up at your destination. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.